This is a Lip Media Podcast. You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. Uh, okay, I guess we should have the conversation. Fuck, that's like the longest intro we've ever done. That's alright, I'm okay that's with fine. that. There yeah, was a dog involved. I feel like <laughs> if this um, episode goes a bit over, that's we're, we're trying to do a lot of things in this show, so yeah. uh, I think that's okay. That's fine. It's the 26th of April, 2019. I'm Benjamin Riley. And I'm Simon Copland. Welcome to Queers. Each episode, we talk our way through questions on a theme, and this week, we're talking about controversies over Anzac Day commemorations. Just before we begin, today we're recording our episode for Digital Pride, a campaign that is organised by Gay Star News in the United Kingdom uh, that allows people to take part in Pride, whoever and wherever you are. Uh, This year, the Digital Pride is tackling homelessness and isolation uh, with articles and videos and uh, podcast episodes about that. Uh, And so after our main discussion today, we're going to be talking about loneliness in the LGBTI community as a way to participate in Digital Pride. And we thank Gay Star News for inviting us to participate. Uh, And, uh, you know, I think it's a really great idea and I'm looking forward to our discussion and maybe it might be something that will lead to a bigger discussion about this issue uh, in a future episode as well. Yeah, totally. And kind of nice to think that we're part of a bunch of other podcasts doing the the same thing. So we'll share uh, on our social media pages some of the uh, the lists and things of, of what else is happening with Digital Pride. So, yeah, thanks. And the Pride takes place from uh, April 29th to the 5th of May. So that's uh, next week from when we're recording, but it'll actually be, we'll release this episode on the first day of Digital Pride and it'll be running for a week from when we've released this episode. So we also have to mention before we start recording that both of us have potential strange audio intrusions into the podcast. I've just moved house a week ago. Yours is much more interesting, Simon, but I thought I'd get mine out of the way. Yeah, uh, I've just moved house a week ago. And as is the case in much of Sydney's inner west, um, under a flight path. So we see planes like flying very low. I don't even notice it. it honest, honestly, the, the kind of noise or the, the planes themselves. But my partner, who's not a great flyer, has this existential dread about see you can be just like driving down the road and see just like a plane look like it's going to crash into you it can be very confronting so you may hear occasionally planes in the background so i I get the sense that will be a a common thread of our future episodes then ben if you're recording in your new house uh yes indeed yep so if we hear planes we know what's going on it's not they're not about to crash into your house you know we're not god i hope not (laughs) well uh my potential strange intrusion into the audio is that uh we are dog sitting for the next few days uh and it's a friend of ours a dog unfortunately um our friend's mum was sick so she they had to go up to sydney to visit uh and his we've looked after him a couple of times before he's a japanese spitz a tiny little white cloud that runs around um but i've locked him in the room with us because martin my partner who's on school holidays is going to leave the house uh soon and uh when people leave the house uh uh, poor little shinzo is his name he gets very very upset and he runs around in circles and barks aggressively uh until the person is gone and so i figured it there's less chance of him doing that if he was in the room with us but then you know if there's a car that goes by he might decide to bark at that instead so we'll see how we go can you lift him up and show me or is that will that be too intrusive no that's all right hang on i just just really want to see him just hang on a second oh yeah (laughs) 
my god, he's so cute. He's beautiful. Yeah, he's really adorable. Oh my god. He's a little white cloud. I reckon. It's just like this are. beautiful white, long white hair. Does he yeah, shed yeah. everywhere? He's shedding a lot at the moment, so I'm getting white fur on. Oh. <laughs> the amazing thing is that he doesn't get very dirty. Um, he had the, the hair just like when he, when you take him for walks, it just sort of, the, the dirt just sort of sheds off him, but his, his, so he's like, he stays this white, which is quite impressive. Yeah, totally. Hang on. I'm just going to take a little screenshot so that we can, we can post share it. on social media what this <laughs> beautiful dog looks like. This is <laughs> a longer intro than, than usual <laughs> for us, but look, it's, it's going to be worth it, uh, because this dog is, is really cute. Amazing. Well, no. you know, happy to have Shinzo as part of the podcast. Yeah, part of the podcast now, Shinzo. Well done. All right, now now you have to bark because I've said that you're going to bark. Oh, oh no. Go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like there was something else I had to say in this intro. Oh, no, there absolutely is. Uh, you were on, you were representing queers on another oh. podcast uh, earlier this week. Tell yes. us about that. Yes, so I went and spoke with the boys at the Gazer Revolting. Uh, I was in Melbourne last week and I managed to pop into their recording and we spent uh, quite a bit of time talking about polyamory and relationship norms, uh, which was really great. Um, again, my partner Martin, he really enjoys the podcast and I've listened to it a few times uh, and quite like it, so it was really nice to go and meet them and uh, they are part of the Lip Media Network, which we have just joined. Uh, and so, uh, go and listen to that episode. It's their latest episode on the gays are revolting, or it might be the second last episode, second latest episode by the time this comes out. Um, we had a really enjoyable conversation, I think. Uh, and one, I think that, um, one in which, uh, I hopefully sort of helped break down some of their potential, I wouldn't say prejudices, but maybe some of the, uh, their preconceptions about things like polyamory and oh, and, cool. and non-monogamy because I think previously they've had some in previous episodes they've had some like comments about that that I haven't appreciated so it's been nice it was nice to go and they had, they were really open and we which had a lot and they were really great so you know all, all you know it was really excellent to be able to go and have such an open conversation with them about it and to to talk about those sorts of things yeah they seem like really lovely guys uh you know hopefully we can return the favor and have one of them on our podcast at some point yeah i think that would be really great and next time you're down in melbourne you should ask them and go on and go and hop on yeah and and obviously compete and see who can have a better appearance on their yeah, on their show absolutely i don't know i feel That's like i don't have anything about. quite so like you know you've got polyamory i have to think about what i've got i'm very tall maybe that could be my thing <laughs> you <laughs> have like a whole <laughs> you have like a whole bunch of interesting political stuff you could talk about then. Yeah, well, yeah. I I'll have to think about it. <laughs> Anzac Day, a day commemorating the landing of Australian and New Zealand soldiers in, at Gallipoli in World War One, was yesterday. Every year when Anzac Day comes around, there are inevitable controversies about the different ways people commemorate the event, and in particular how companies and others capitalise on the commemorations. In Perth, for example, a strip club was criticised this year for hosting a, quote, women in uniform party on the day. The Voodoo Lounge promoted the event as a, quote, way to celebrate the freedoms that our brave men and women have fought and died for all of us to enjoy. Similar controversies have followed gay venues in the past as well. In 2017, the Colombian Hotel in Sydney was criticised for promoting Anzac Week. 
including a poster featuring a shirtless muscled man wearing camouflage pants and war paint. But these controversies are not just about clubs. This year, for example, the AFL came under fire after it organised a performance from the band Birds of Tokyo before the annual Anzac Day match. These controversies have gotten us thinking, what is the right way to remember? Is anger over these sorts of promotions justified, or should people be allowed to do whatever they want on Anzac Day? What can we learn from this when commemorating other horrific events? So Ben, let's get started. What do you think? Is it wrong for gay clubs and strip joints to be advertising events on Anzac Day? In short, it's not that I don't care about the topic broadly. I feel like there's lots of interesting stuff in here, but I like I just feel like I don't know, what like whatever. Like it just is a like people use all sorts of things to promote whatever kind of events they have. It's tacky, absolutely, it's tasteless, sure. But I guess it that just doesn't really bother me. They're strip clubs and, and dance clubs, and that's kind of the space that they inhabit. I think it's kind of weird for them to say... I feel like it's go, it's a bit rich to say that it's like commemorating the freedoms that we won in, you know, World War One or whatever. Like, that's kind of, you know, come on. That feels we, a bit gross to, my, gross to, to me, you know. I, it's not even that I think it's gross. I just think it's like... I it's think it's just kind of untrue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's gross in the like, uh, in the sense of, uh, it. It's sort of. I, I guess what I don't like is the uh, the sort of the implicit promotion of the military militarism that comes with that. Um, that the idea that this was all about our freedoms to be, you know, sure to, sure. to go to strip clubs and gay and gay bars, which is clearly just not well, realistic you know, at all. Particularly in the case of World War One, which was one hundred percent not about that, and Australia, uh, Australian troops' involvement in the campaign in Gallipoli was also not about that. Like it, yeah, that's you, the yeah. What I, freedoms were we actually fighting for in Australia at this point of time? There was not, you know, at that at, in that war. You know, I don't think it, there was. I mean, there wasn't a major existential threat to Australian to Australia at all in that particular war in you know in Turkey. So I think that yeah, that that I find a bit like ugh, icky. You know, I just sure it's just, sure yeah. But that I think I have that problem with broader t- commemorations of Anzac Day in general. It's not just about these particular ones that sort of draw controversy. Yeah, that's it. Because part of me is like, like I kind of enjoy. Yeah, I don't, like I don't. I find it. Like, obviously, there is the kind of fetishization of a certain type of, like, military person, uh, but I feel like that's so abstracted from, like, actual fetishization of the military. Like, it's basically just a military, uh, like, a uniform fetish, rather. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I don't know. Like, I also am kind of into, maybe I'm kidding myself here, but into the subversion of... of reverence for the military by like having like you know foxhole fantasies and stuff like that a lot of which i uh find shamefully kind of hot can you can you tell us and our listeners what you mean by a foxhole fantasy oh you know like like the the <laughs> thanks simon for prompting me to explain my sexual fantasies on the podcast well you brought uh, it up not no, me <laughs> no, no. but i mean like you know they're just a bunch of like straight guys in war maybe straight guys in war like they're really kind of going through a rough time and to have uh some camaraderie and solace in the in the trenches they have to turn to each other as the only other human contact and then maybe that leads from just uh friendship and companionship into something sexual and 
Yeah, you know, I, there's no doubt it. that I have I have watched that video. Um, <laughs> you know, and and I'm sure many of our listeners have as well. And I think that it's that's not just a gay male thing. I think that you know, in a lot of queer spaces, there's that um, the fetishization of um, of people in the military. I think that that's very true, probably in lesbian spaces in particular as well, around around uh, women in the military. Uh, totally, yeah, sort of, yeah, yeah. That sort of you know uniform fetish is totally a thing, um, and it's. I, you know, and it, and I think that clearly that these sorts of advertisements, and I, you know, I think it's very true. I mean, the the Voodoo Lounge one that we um, mentioned at the start, the one in Perth, was a straight club. But I, I mean, I think that the fetishization from straight men of women in military uniforms is clearly there as well. There's something about that that definitely taps into, uh, you know, military uniforms certainly taps into a bunch of tropes around, you know, fetish fetish tropes around uniforms. And and that runs across a whole range of different sexualities. It's not just gay men or, or lesbian women. Who for do sure, this. for sure. Um, and I do, but I don't even think that that stuff is about the military or about war. I mean, I, oh, oh, it is indirectly. I think it's more about uh, just like discipline and like power fantasies around being disciplined, as, as in uh, disciplined as an active verb, something someone does to another person. Or being, yeah, I don't know, like like subordinate or or, or dominant. Like, I think that's kind of more what it's about. And that taps into a lot of stuff around, you know... I think uniforms in general, I think there's a thing about that. You know, things around... um, uh, You know, there's a lot of porn around, like, people in prisons or police... Uh, police uniforms, and I think you get a lot of like sure, super sure. super progressive people who are anti the police, and then will watch police porn, and that is, you know, I can see that, you know, that discipline, the desire for discipline within a sexual fantasy makes total sense, and I think that this certainly was playing into that, and I think that that is potentially why these particular things create controversy because it's, uh, you know, the there's a, a serious uncomfortableness within parts of the community, particularly conservative. You know, it's really conservative newspapers who are running these sorts of controversies um, that really hate the sexualization of this stuff. Uh, and I think that that is interesting because I think it has the potential to say, you know, what you're saying is to actually be subverting some of the, the broader narratives around, around Anzac Day and the military in a kind of, you know, not serious way. I don't think it's going to be challenging it, you know, majorly, but I think that there's something I like about that, that it's sort of going, well, you know, this is how we're dealing, we're, we're doing military stuff. We're going to fetishize it. We're going to talk, you know, engage in, the, you know, fetishize the uniforms and not take the, the other stuff, you know, the other nationalism stuff super seriously. And I kind of mm. like that part of it. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't want to kind of overplay, I guess, no. how subversive genuinely subversive i think it is yeah i don't think the colombian hotel is necessarily that subversive really no (laughs) i mean i think it's worth saying particularly for listeners who might be outside of australia and new zealand it's really difficult to overstate what a big deal anzac day is in particularly I, i don't have much experience of it in new zealand but in australia and i i think you kind of hit the nail on the head when you talked about the discomfort of that people have around sex in the context of Anzac Day stuff. And to me, it, it feels like a just the point where those two things come together, which is the extreme reverence for Anzac Day and general discomfort around sex in society. Like I was thinking, I, w- I went to the, the States a few years ago uh, for the first time and went to Washington, D.C. and was fascinated when I was there by 
how much all of the presidential monuments are like temples. Like they're like these kind of weird religious things. I was like, Australia has nothing like that. And then I came back to Australia and was like, oh fuck, we do. We like have this insane obsession with war. We do. You go to, it's so, and to such a bizarre extent. Which is so, you you know, and so fascinating because there's never, I mean, there's been the frontier wars, the, you know, which we don't commemorate in this country, which is no, the, at all. the well, wars against well, Indigenous people. We um, pretend they don't exist. Yeah, we pretend they don't exist. But beyond that, there's never really been... So, we, we commemorate wars that weren't on Australian soil. You know, we mm. had, there was a couple of intrusions during the Second World War. The Japanese bombed Darwin. There was uh, submarines... Uh, in the Sydney Harbour, but there wasn't, you know, there wasn't an invasion, there wasn't mass fighting. Um, so we and those we events aren't these... even really what's commemorated anyway. It's more yeah. like in in the case of World War Two, it's more the big battles in in, in Papua New France Guinea. and yeah. you know in Southeast Asia. Yep. Yeah, yeah, um, totally. But you go we, like, we, we, we obsess any small town in Australia, like doesn't there, it could be a population of like a thousand people? There will be a war memorial. It yep. is so bizarre. Or even in Canberra, uh, where you live, Simon, like the National War Memorial is huge. one of the strangest places that I've ever been in my life. Like it is fully like a church. There are stained glass windows with like the equivalent of saints, which are the soldiers. Uh, and it's massive. It's, it's, yeah, Australia and and is the war memorial leads war. leads down uh, sort of is the at the end of what's called Anzac Parade, uh, which is a major road, which is when on Anzac Day they have the march down Anzac Parade, and down there there's a series, it's quite a long road. There's a series of war memorials of individual smaller memorials uh, to different parts. So there's there's a memorial to the nurses, there's a memorial to the wars fought in Vietnam, there's a memorial to the. Uh, uh, alliance between Australia and New Zealand, for example, is this huge. It's kind of like I think about it. You know, I've never been to Washington, but you know, they have the parade in Washington that has all of the different the museum, National Mall. Yeah, the National Mall. It's a little bit like that, but only about war. And I think mm. that's really fascinating because it, it really highlights the focus in, a, in 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 Canberra. It is the sort of you look down it and you can see Parliament, and there's this connection totally. between Parliament and what the War Memorial, and it shows totally. this focus that we have on war. And I think it's fascinating because, you know, apart from apart from the frontier wars, there has never been a war on Australian soil, uh, you know, and we have this compared to going to Europe, for example, where there are so many wars in it, and they have every right to be focused on war. And I feel in some ways you don't have that same... It's different. The, the approach is very different. Totally, yeah. And I think also the, the comparison to the frontier wars, which obviously is a very... Uh, a kind of loaded term as well, given uh, you know a lot of those could, a lot of those incidents could be basically just classed as massacres. Yeah, um, and they were. They yeah, were. totally highlights the specificity of what is being commemorated here and what provokes outrage. Yeah, it just points to the fact that there are like lots of horrible things that have happened in Australia's history or in any country's history to lots of different people. And these are just the very particular things that we pick out. And the fact that particularly gay stuff, I think, is highlighted for uh, as a kind of controversial intrusion on the memory of these things indicates that there is, in the minds of, you know, Australia, there is no overlap between the memory of war and queer people yeah absolutely and i think that that is kind of hitting the nail on the head of what is going on in these controversies because i think it it is exactly about 
this uh, lack of desire to see any queerness in our history. And and that's that's not just an Australian thing. That is something that happens, I mean, all over the world. Uh, and it's sort of the the erasure of that queerness. And I and I find this particularly frustrating uh, when we talk about the Second World War, um, which Anzac Day is not is about the First World War. Uh, and so it makes uh, sense. There's less there's less a focus on queerness in that. But it, when we talk about the Second World War in Australia and in other parts of the world, there's this really deliberate erasure of queerness that happens very strongly. And I think about this every time I go to Berlin. Have you ever been to Berlin? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so in Berlin they have, uh, you know, there's uh, monuments to the... Uh, there's a range of different monuments to the genocides that exi- that have happened uh, t- towards the different groups of people. And I find myself always very frustrated because there's this... And this, is, this monument is amazing. The monument to the murdered Jews of the Holocaust in Berlin is just incredible. I absolutely love it. It's this amazing... Uh, there's these concrete blocks that that sort of it looks like a bit of a graveyard potentially, or it looks like uh, you know it could, uh, the, the the designer has never said what it actually is, but there's these concrete blocks and you walk in them and you can only walk in them in single row, so you're by yourself and you sort of get surrounded by this concrete. I love it, and I think it's really amazing, and I think it should be there, and I think it deserves to be there. What really frustrates me is that across the road from that is the the memorial to the murdered homosexuals in the in the genocide, uh, and in the in the Holocaust, I mean, and it is this tiny one little concrete box that has a little video in it, and it's completely. If you didn't know it was there, you just would have no idea it was there. And for me, and it and it's it, and it's also really relevant when you go into uh, there's a concentration camp a camp outside Berlin where they talk about how when uh, the West took that took back that concentration camp, they kept all the homosexuals there. They released everybody except for the homosexuals, and homosexuality stayed illegal in Germany for a long time and people stayed in those concentration camps for a long time uh and that whole part of that of of that you know it's sort of increasingly being spoken about but that part of the second world war the sort of persecution of homosexuals is really often ignored uh as part of that and the not just that but also the continuing persecution it's sort of like seen when it is spoken about it's like oh look how bad the nazis were but then we sort of forget that there's like all this continued persecution that happened in Germany in particular, but everywhere else in the world following that. And I think that there's this real uh, interesting thing there where there's like this guilt potentially about what continued to happen, but and that sort of leads to a refusal to actually acknowledge what happened during the war and post it. Sure, uh, sure. And I think that that is super interesting. We don't talk about the Second World War as much in Australia. When we do, we talk about sort of stuff in the Pacific. We don't talk as much about the Holocaust as would, as you would in Europe. But going to Europe, I really notice how uh, the sort of the queer stuff is completely erased from it. Um, it's completely erased from that discourse. Um, and I find that super enraging. Uh, sorry, and it's not just that. It's not just the queer groups. It's, you know, the the, the uh, genocide against the Roma people, against pe- uh, people with disabilities. Uh, those That is often much less spoken about as well. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's also, uh, uh, you know, that's obviously not the only kind of queerness that's erased from from military history in Australia. Although there has been a, a lot of quite interesting work from queer historians here looking at homosexuality in, like, essentially the kind of foxhole fantasies that I was <laughs> describing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, they, that there are a lot of stories about gay relationships in military contexts in Australia and... and uh, historians who have have done some quite interesting stuff around that. 
I think it's also interesting that you talk about the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin, also the site of a controversy policed by gay people themselves, which was when a bunch of gay men came under fire for, for taking selfies, taking selfies and oh, making yeah. it their grinder profile pictures in the uh, Holocaust there was a Memorial there was a, in there Berlin. There was a Tumblr of it, of people... Um, there was a whole Tumblr of people taking grinder selfies at the Holocaust Memorial. Totally. And I found the controversy over that really interesting because I... I mean, first of all, I am broadly against naming and shaming with photos of people on the internet. I feel like yeah, it's me this too. practice that's just about attacking people who maybe haven't read the same things as you and don't know the context of something or or just haven't had the time or the energy to understand that what they're doing is problematic in the whatever spaces you are deciding to police them within. So that's, I think, a bit shit. But also, I don't think I care that much. Like, I just, I feel like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's one of those I things, guess I'd I wouldn't do it myself, to... you know, but no, I just no, also don't care. And so, but, but, you know, but that's, there's a difference between what I wouldn't do myself and what I give a shit about. Like, yeah, you know, totally. I don't and think I, that's... Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm just trying to think of situations in public discourse where I would really care about... Like, I just feel like there's such a big difference between someone taking a photo of themselves in the Holocaust Memorial, which, granted, actually, a wonderful photo opportunity spot. It's such a, like, weird and kind of eerie space to take a photo and and they actually encourage you to take photos there. They that's it's not it's not a somber space in which is one of the things of the interesting things about it. It's not it's a space in which it's it's fully outside. It's surrounded by parks. You're in a busy city. There are lots of people there. You're encouraged to sit. You know you you're asked not to stand on the stones, but you're encouraged to sit on the stones. You're allowed to people sit and lie. You know and and sunbake sometimes. Uh, it's quite. It's not a somber space. When you get into the depths of it, because it goes sort of down a hill almost, and it's, you can be surrounded by the... It's a little bit more somber in there because you're by yourself, but on the out, outskirts, it's actually... It's, there's stuff happening. There's lots of tool groups that are there. There are people sitting and taking photos. You're encouraged to take photos. It's not like it's... You know, it's not like you're going to a concentration camp and taking photos and putting that on your... You know, taking selfies in front of the, you know, the place where the person was murdered or anything like that. It's a very different sort of space. But, like, I think even... I, f I feel like even that... I mean, I don't not, I don't want to kind of push this to the point of, like, yeah, where do I stop being uncomfortable? Where do I stop being uncomfortable? Or where do I start being uncomfortable, rather? But, like, even <laughs> taking these photos in a concentration camp, yeah, it's tasteless, tasteless. Yes, I wouldn't do it, but... I don't know. Again, do I really care? Like, do I care about someone taking selfies of themselves and putting those on the internet? Like, just the stakes seem so low. Yeah, I think that's and really I think fair. What, what to me unites the stuff we're talking about around potentially tasteless parties commemorating Anzac Day in strip clubs and gay venues and the grinder profile thing in the Holocaust Memorial is basically a discomfort around sex whether from society generally or even within gay communities, that there is something inherently shameful, obviously, but also inherently undignified, that's the word I'm looking for, about sex that means that it can't be related to things that we decide need to be revered, whether that's the deaths of millions of Jews during the Holocaust or 
the deaths of soldiers during the world wars in Australia, like I, I think it just points to the idea that sex is undignified and cannot be associated with those things. That's a really interesting point. And I think, you know, I hadn't thought about it in that way, but I think I sort of 100% agree with you. And I think that it really connects what I'm thinking about how we then erase broader queerness within these sorts of events. And I think that the Second World War is a perfect example of this because it was so prevalent within the event. Like there was a direct attack on on gay men in particular, but queer people more generally uh, in that event. And we erase it because then we have to acknowledge that there was also an attack on sex, on, on the ways people had sex. And that is something we don't want to talk about because we're so uncomfortable with that in general, particularly in the context of, of a war. Um, because totally. we want to remember it for the right reasons, not for the icky reasons. And I think that that also points to an important point of distinction between this analysis that I think we're making here and the ways that this kind of erasure would be talked about often within gay spaces, which would be to say that there were a lot of queer soldiers that fought in wars. They may have been closeted. You know, there was a big controversy a few years ago. Uh, I mean, in fact, I think it's been kind of ongoing for decades around openly gay soldiers wanting to participate in Anzac Day yep. events, you know, ceremonies and, and uh, services and things like that and, and not being allowed to. I'm not sure if that's changed. It's not something I really uh, have paid a lot of attention to over the years. But to me, that feeds into the same kind of reverence for the military and, uh, I mean, I guess respectability politics of going... Like, the, same, the kind of, uh, like, gays in the military stuff that we see in the US, which to me is, like, essentially buying into the same militaristic, nationalistic rhetoric that a lot of commemorations of war do, which is saying we don't have any problem with war. Actually, we just want to be able to be somber and commemorate this event in the same way everyone else gets to. And I think that that, I have real issues with that. What I'm saying is that we should be able to talk about sex and war and things that we don't think are dignified and things that we don't think fit with the ways we usually say war should be thought about and commemorated or tragedy should be thought about and commemorated because it reveals what we think is worthy of commemoration and what's not or what we think is worthy of dignity and what's not. I actually just want to touch on that last point as well because I think that there's also a question about what we consider to be dignified here that is worthy of challenging as well because I think it's super interesting and it makes total sense that we, particularly in Australia, I mean we think about this a lot in Australia, of the the importance of thinking about the dignity of war and that the moment we question war, I mean, this happens in the US a lot as well, you know, you question war and you're questioning our soldiers and you're not respecting our soldiers and all that kind of stuff. I think there's a worthy discussion of saying that actually war is an indignified thing, is not a dignified thing, that is a murderous, bloody thing that often happens for no reason, largely happens for no reason, particularly when we're talking about the First World War, there is so much discussion to be had about how what a pointless war that was. Sure. And the the flip side of this sort of discussion of, you know, you know, if we want to think about the capacity to talk about sex within, you know, to sort of change the nature of sex as being something that's undignified, I think there's also potentially to talk about war as being an undignified thing uh, as well as something that we shouldn't be 
that we should be commemorating, absolutely, and I think there's an importance to commemorate what happened, but we shouldn't be celebrating at the same time. And I think that there's something about that that sort of links these two things together. I'm I'm not putting this thought together 100% in my head, but I think that there's something that links those two together. Sure. I mean, the I think the that's been a kind of perennial question about Anzac Day absolutely. events, which is, you know, what is the difference between thinking about people who've died and celebration and glorification and is is true of kind of I feel like war narratives in general you know in in kind of film and, and in all sorts of contexts so I'm wondering then Ben you know we've talked about the role that queer people have played in wars and how that is often ignored in 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 public discourse how do we commemorate the sacrifices of queer people in our history and, and I think not just about war but you know we, we could think about you know those who have died from HIV AIDS or you know the Pulse nightclub attack that happened a couple of years ago these sorts of major events what is there a right way to commemorate or what does that look like I don't think I wouldn't say that there's a right or a wrong way to do it but I also would say that the reality is that we do in queer communities mark a lot of these tragedies in ways that I think are quite powerful counterpoints to the really nationalistic celebrations around Anzac Day or other war-related things that that happen. Because ultimately that's, I feel like what I would attempt to describe is the difference between, like the fact that queer people are not situated within a nationalistic framework, that we are not a kind of acceptable part of the nation state, which is why we can't be included in Anzac Day celebrations. Like, ultimately, what is being marked there is the idea of nationhood in some sense. Absolutely. And so the desire for queer people... And I feel like the the an even clearer example of this than gay stuff in Anzac Day in Australia is, is the do- attempt to get rid of Don't Ask, Don't Tell in the US and queer inclusion of in the military is very much about a version of respectability politics that's about wanting certain kinds of queers to be included in citizenhood, to yeah, be included in what in... is or isn't an acceptable part participant in nation building. Absolutely. Basically. And it's to you know to be able to be to participate in nationalism in some sort of way. Totally, totally. And I think that so much of you know, we've talked about homonationalism before on the podcast. I think so much of respectability politics and when we talk about that stuff is basically about that. Is about wanting queer people to be Uh, made acceptable parts of a nation i think in terms of alternative ways to commemorate queer events like have you ever been to a a candlelight memorial for world aids day or a um you know i don't think another kind of world aids day memorial or, or or other part of the year so i would highly recommend i mean it sounds like kind of weird you know must do things but uh, I so in Melbourne where I I lived until a couple of years ago at the Positive Living Centre in I think it's in St Kilda they have an AIDS memorial every year which on World AIDS Day and uh, the first time I went along it was so powerful and moving and very ritualized and very emotional and had been going on for a very long time there were people you know not just gay people there lots of kind of parents of people who died in the 80s and 90s and these these 
processes, I guess these rituals like reading the names of the dead, like lighting candles, like everyone having an opportunity to go up and, and speak. And I found that coming together in a formalized, but again, very kind of counter to dominant ideas of nationhood or of society really, really powerful, really, really moving. And it made me feel like I was a part of something. It made me feel like I was a part of this alternative to whatever is being marked in Anzac Day, but that I still had a tradition and a legacy and a history that I was a part of in a really powerful way. I think that's really interesting. I mean, I, yeah, I'm thinking about it. And I don't think I've been to one of those events and maybe I will... Uh try and endeavour to do so this year on World AIDS Day. I'd be intrigued. If, I'm sure there will be one in Canberra. I'm sure, I think, yeah. I think that that's really interesting to hear what you're saying. And I, I was thinking about that because I think when it comes to AIDS, one of the other things that I've started to notice, we talked about war memorials in Australia and how they're everywhere. And one thing I've started to notice a little bit increasingly is that uh, there's sort of similar versions, not not to the same scale, clearly, of uh, HIV AIDS memorials that are popping up in different places. And so in Canberra, there's, uh, we have the National Arboretum that has just, uh, that has been, oh, it's been going for probably 10 years now. It's a really amazing oh. place. It's really, really, uh, it's beautiful. So that tree farm, you know, tree, a tree museum, it's, it's stunning. It's, it's great. It's huge. I love it. And they've just installed, uh, built a HIV AIDS garden there, which you can go in and, and walk through. And it's just a small thing. There's a collection of a few different memorial gardens that exist in there. And I was thinking about that. And then I was thinking about when I was in Spain recently, I was in Barcelona. What are are the other ones just out of curiosity? Oh, I can't remember off the top of my head, to be honest. That would be very interesting to know. Yeah. I'm not sure if they're all memorials, but they might be just different types of gardens. There might be a couple of memorials, but I can't remember what they are. Mm. Um, and I was thinking about that, and then I, we were in Spain last year, and we were in Barcelona, and in one part of Barcelona that I found a HIV-AIDS memorial garden as well. And I was thinking about how there's something about that sort of link between... They're, they're kind of very queer in a very kind of way. They're a garden, they're, they're peaceful reflection, they're not the sort of grand monuments that you would expect... Uh, of, you know, of war memorials, sure. which happen in Australia. But they're sure. also still inevitably very... phallic. Yeah, inevitably fight, but they're also still institutionalized in many ways. And there's this bridge between, you know, and they're, they're, they're built, they're spaces you go by yourself, you do quiet reflection, they're very somber, they're very, you know, and, and, and you know, the, 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 the event you described sounds like it was very somber as well, but I think that it's still, it's a community gathering event. It's, this is less of a community gathering space mm-hmm. as it is a, a place to go for yourself. And there's this interesting link between the sort of queerness and the institutionalness of these sorts of spaces that I've noticed uh, and how they sort of, cross those boundaries a little bit. They're not they're not these phallic war memorials, but they're also still built for particular audiences. Totally. And it's worth saying with the AIDS memorial that I went to, you know, there was also like a choir and performances mm. and people had drinks and a chat and a laugh and like it wasn't I like, like there that, was yeah. this kind of moment in in the center of the it goes for like two hours or something and and you know, there's like half an hour in the middle that is this ritual, but it's also like a program of of fun community stuff that you're hearing, and it's it's it is reflective, but it is living. Yep, yep. 
As we said at the start of the episode, we are recording this episode as part of Digital Pride, an online pride celebration organized by Gay Star News. This year, Digital Pride is tackling loneliness and isolation with articles and videos connecting LGBTI people. So let's just have a quick discussion about this. I think this might be a topic that we may turn into a, a bigger episode later on the track. It's one I yeah. don't think we'd actually thought about until Gay Star News had approached us. But I mean, Ben, do you think loneliness is a major issue within the LGBTI community? I think loneliness is a major issue within within society at large. Yeah, Absolutely. me too. Yeah. I was actually having a conversation with a, a friend just a couple of days ago after it was my birthday a couple of days ago. I had a, a, a big party. Happy birthday. And, thank you. And a bunch of people came over and I said to my friend, I feel very lucky to be a person who, you know, I've always found it relatively easy to, to make friends and I have a lot of very close friends in my life. And I feel super lucky to be someone who is is not lonely. But obviously, it's a massive problem for lots of people. Isolation and loneliness, I think, has just, you know, it gets worse as, as the years go on. I think uh, capitalism, uh, neoliberal capitalism individualizes and, and isolates us. And I think that within queer communities within LGBTI communities, I think that's absolutely worse for a couple of reasons. I think partly because people can't often rely on their families or their friends and kind of face rejection in environments like high school and in environments like family that pushes them out into their late teens and early 20s, having to potentially forge an entirely new life. Which is so I think hard. Oh, very it's, hard to do. It's like, so hard, you yeah. Know, and I think that that's something we should, you know, finish off your list of why you think it is, but I think that that's something that would be really worth touching on, why that's so hard. Totally. Well, I think the other reason, which goes speaks in part to why it's so hard, is that, and we have talked about this a little bit on the podcast before, that queer spaces present themselves in a way that is very welcoming and inclusive, but I think that that is often not backed up by actual inclusion and actual, uh, I, I guess, the kind of foundations necessary to build actual friendships and relationships. And when we've talked about things like the language of family and the language of, uh, you know, chosen family and queer family and all of that, I think that the people's money is often not where their mouth is in those respects. And I've just seen so many instances of people being surprised young queer people being surprised when they think that they are part of this queer family but then something goes wrong she hits the fan and then people are just not there for them and they realize that the foundations they thought were there aren't and i just find that so brutal i mean isolation and loneliness is never a good thing but it seems particularly cruel when people think it's there but it's not yeah, this made me. This topic made me think uh, of RuPaul's Drag Race and the uh, you know whenever there's a, a queen on RuPaul's Drag Race who has a breakdown on on stage because their family rejected them or you know it's probably happens once an episode, once a season or something like that. Totally, yeah. Ru, Ru always comes back with the same speech of you know we queer people we get to make our own families and that's and now you're part of our family and blah 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 blah. And blah. he fucking cries like, ugh. Yeah, yeah, and and then you know, and then, and then we we discussed this in an episode uh, last year when you know when the shit hit the fan with the vixen around this stuff, she was the first to sort of push you know say you know to push her out to be like okay she doesn't want to be part of our family you know we're you know that we're done you know and that really sort of 
shattered the for me it shattered the illusion of what Rue is actually like when it comes to families. And I think it was a it was a great example of what you're talking about here is that, you know, the, we, we talk about families, we talk about that queer family, we talk about we're inclusive. And then, you know, when stuff goes wrong, you know, when you're either, you know, in multiple different ways, when stuff goes, when shit goes wrong, when you've, when you've got serious issues and you're, and you're struggling, often you're quick, you know, that sort of foundation is not there, but also, you know, I think there's the alternative, you know, if you're, we now have this sort of, uh, in particular parts of the community where there's fights over being more queer than everybody else. And so if you're not queer enough, you quickly can get pushed out of that space of whatever Mm, that means. And so there's this huge you know identity politics thing where you know i think it's fascinating where we talk about these major issues of loneliness but we have a form of identity politics that is not about community in any shape way shape or form it's about you know your individual identity and being more individually queer than somebody else and fighting almost over that queerness and so you end up not being able to build the community that can deal with issues like loneliness, that can deal with the major issues that people are facing because they don't, they might not have access to a traditional family. You know, I think you and I are probably both very lucky. We we, we have family, uh, like a, a, a sort of our biological families that we can connect to. We have partners where, you know, I'm very lucky. I feel very lucky in that You've I don't feel lonely. you got two of them. Yeah, I, don't, I feel very lucky that I don't feel lonely at all. Sometimes I feel surround, too surrounded by people. Um, yeah, <laughs> good problem to have. Uh, but you know, I think that, um, you know, and maybe, and, 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 um, you know, we could, we keep talking about this stuff around family stuff. And we, I think we touch on this on the podcast quite a bit and it would be interesting maybe one day to go into more depth about why we think that those people aren't willing to engage in that thing, that, that sort of rhetoric in depth, because I'm not quite sure what's underlying it. Is it just because people are people or is it because something specific about the queer community, you know, is it just that our rhetoric is, is, is not matching the reality or is there something specific that is actually happening within queer spaces? Because I don't, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued by that because I think that there are so many different instances that you can see of people getting rejected for the, you know, and, and creating this sort of loneliness epidemic that I think is is true and is absolutely happening. Yeah, I agree. And I think that that is totally fodder for a longer conversation. I'm aware that we have provided a really bleak offering to Digital Pride and these conversations about loneliness. And it, it's kind of a shitty thing to sit here and go, we're not lonely. We've got great people around us. Queer communities are shit and they make loneliness worse. So... I would like to take this opportunity to make a promise that we will return to this topic and that we will hopefully try to come to a more hopeful and constructive place. Not that I think that these contributions are are not valuable, but it would be nice to be able to give something, give people something a little, uh, yeah, a bit more hopeful, I guess. I guess, you know, maybe to end on a hopeful note, you know, one of the things I like about this digital pride and one of the reasons I wanted to be involved in it uh, when we got approached about it was that I think that it is doing one of the things and it's doing so in a in a sort of media context. You know, we're talking about videos and articles and podcasts, etc. But it's doing one of the things that can help, you know, sort of try and deal with this issue. And I think that, you know, going back to our conversation about structures versus individuals, you know, and I'm very much, you know, sort of, not the, you know, I'm not an individualist in these approaches. We've had those debates in the past. Uh, But I think this is one area for me where actually 
it does take us to be sitting down and looking at who we are sometimes and just and taking the space to go to reflect and say okay we're talking about loneliness this week maybe it is worth reflecting on how i engage with people when shit hits the fan or engaging mm. how we engage in a queer community and what can i do to better that and you know i think about this uh, i thought about, you know i think about this a lot when stuff happens in my community so a couple of years ago um, I, we, there was a friend in our, in our, in my friendship circle who committed suicide. Uh, it was really, really awful, but one of the, you know, I had to say positive, but one of the things that came from that was a discussion within my friendship group about how we can be better friends to each other and how we can support each other. And a lot of people were supporting this friend. It wasn't like she wasn't supported. There was, she just, she had serious mental health issues, but it sort of led to that, that conversation. And I think, that was good for all of us to be able to, to talk about that, to think about how we can, you know, it's super easy. I don't think people do this stuff maliciously or some people do it maliciously, but I don't think people, a lot of people do this stuff maliciously. It's just easy to get complacent and it's easy to sort of can go on your life and think, you know, this is what life is like and, and to sort of forget that you need to put investment into friendships and you need to put investment into Absolutely. families. And to take this moment to talk about loneliness, to talk about isolation, to think maybe this is an opportunity to stop and say, okay, maybe I should think about how I engage with my friends and how I invest in my friends and how I invest in my family and, Make sure that, am I doing that? Am I putting, taking that time? And that is something that I think that we can do individually that can be really valuable to deal with this issue. You know, think about the people in your life and think of who about who's important in the, in the investment you're putting in those people because that's actually a really important investment to be making. Absolutely. And I, I just have the firm belief, both in terms of community as an idea generally and in terms of loneliness and, and friendship and intimacy specifically, that you need to put in, you know, like that, that you can't be entitled about this stuff. You can't just think that, I mean, obviously it's something everyone deserves, but it's got to be mutual. You know, you, you actually do have to, to invest in, in relationships. And I think that that is a really, uh, a lovely point to end on. Thanks, Simon. Thank you all for listening. Uh, we're sorry this was a little bit of a longer episode than normal, but we both think it's probably was worth it because I feel like we've had some really great conversations today. But if you would like to support the podcast, please consider doing so through our Patreon. If you've enjoyed these conversations, uh, we're about to record our next Patreon episode as well, so we have a, uh, a an additional monthly episode that comes out. Uh, on Patreon, we have to be a subscriber to get access to that. Uh, so you can support us on patreon.com forward slash queers podcast. Otherwise, if you'd like to get in touch or make a comment, you can do so through various ways online. I was going to say too that we will be just as a teaser for the Patreon episode. If you want to hear us talk about Joe Biden and inappropriate touching and uh, some further conversations about consent, that's what we're going to be talking about. So um, you will not hear us talking about that if you're not a Patreon subscriber. If you would like to email us, we do get lovely emails from people. You can do so at queerspodcast at gmail.com. We're also at queerspodcast on Facebook and Twitter. And now Instagram as well. Oh, and Instagram. Yes. Uh, yeah, I should go on our Instagram and be in a, a, like pretend anonymous person liking our fantastic Instagram page and commenting, etc. But you real people should also do that. We have personal social media as well. I am on Twitter at Ben C. Riley. Simon's on Twitter at Simon Copland. And he's also on Facebook at Simon Copland Writer. 
You can also find the podcast on our website, queerspodcast.com. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. And please leave a review and rating. It's always nice reading the reviews and it's uh, a great way to help other people find the podcast. The absolute best way to get people listening to the podcast, though, is recommendations from friends. So if you know someone that you think would enjoy queers that would be interested in the kinds of discussions that we're having, ha- having? having, not a word, that we're having, please let them know. We'd also like to give a shout out, as we did at the top of the show, to our podcast network, Lip Media. Go and check out all of their other shows, including The Gays Are Revolting, Feet, Simon Copland in uh the episode from the week that they that we're recording i don't know what day what day did it was on out? it was last saturday so that's the so whatever episode was on saturday the 20th of april but you know listen to their their show generally it's a really fantastic show thank you thank you all for listening and we'll see you in a couple of weeks bye